Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Sarah McDilling. I'm here with my fellow Booktopian Bronwyn Ely, and we are delighted to be sitting opposite Tristan Banks. Oh, this is exciting for me too because I listen to the podcast and I've heard your voices all the time. And then now I'm going to ruin the whole thing by being no. It's going to be a good interview. No, it's going to be great. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, so you're here to talk about your new book, Detention. Yeah. For our listeners who haven't read up on it yet, do you want to tell them what it's about? It's about a 12-year-old girl, Seema, who's an Afghan Hazara girl who escapes from an immigration detention centre early one morning and the escape goes wrong. She was escaping with about 50 others and uh, an alarm goes up. She is split up from her family but she manages to get away over a road and into the bush and she takes refuge in a local school and the school goes into lockdown and during the lockdown, a boy finds her hiding in the toilet block and he has to decide whether to dob her in and have her sent back into immigration detention or whether to help her get away and then she has to decide whether she can trust him or not we Brian and i mm. both actually just read this yesterday and we're texting each other um yeah. this is such a fast-paced read it's impossible to put down oh, that's just I, like said, I read it in one it. sitting yeah, oh. yeah. It's do like, people do that? You know how people say, oh, I read it, I couldn't put it down. Yes. Like, literally, oh, right. Literally, I couldn't put it down. And uh, I mean, uh, before just before you came, I was writing up a review and I was trying to wrap my head around my thoughts and, and I was trying to think, what, you know, what was I feeling when I was reading it? And I, and I remember, you know, uh, you know, my phone buzzed and I just blatantly ignored it. My brother came into the room to ask me a question. I did not even look up for my book. I was just like, yep, okay, bye. You know, <laughs> get out. That no, because I just... It kind of, and I mean this in a good way, it kind of reads like an episode of 24, you know, oh, yeah. where you just, you're on the edge of your seat the whole time because of that time limit, you know, mm. and that pace and you just go, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And I just... 100% yeah. unputdownable. Oh, I'm and glad like, you say that. I just think, oh, yeah, not many people have read it yet because it's not oh, out okay, yet. Yeah. So um, it's interesting to me to hear people's responses other than mine, you know, reading it for the hundredth time. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, I was so in that story that, in fact, the only thoughts I had other than just experiencing the story were like, how is this, like, is there ever going to be a break? Like, there just isn't. Oh. It just, um, it's, it is exactly like 24. It's mm. like, strap in and, and you are going to be very tense until the end of the book. And you don't know how in a good way. In a good way. Exactly. Oh, that's good that you say that because, uh, I mean, I'm pretty over – I think I've become more and more ruthless in editing over time and there were pulls of action, you know, maybe even 5,000-word sort of pulls of action that even close to the end of editing I slashed and or, you know, working with the editor um, – yeah, just because it didn't serve the story and rather than, you know, try to hit a word count or whatever, we were just ruthless and said, no, nah, just keep keep shearing back and paring back. Yeah. I like to read that way. I like books that are about stuff and with characters that you care about, but I also want the story to move, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to do the work as the reader. I feel like it's the writer's responsibility to, to have that in the story. Well, you definitely achieved it here, the, mm-hmm. the impetus, this plot just, like, breakneck the whole way through. Oh, good. And, um, and, yeah, as well as that, like you just said, what we're aiming for, the characters are lovely. Like, you really feel for these kids. Um, I fell in love with a a dog that is in this book. (laughs) Oh, I was so nervous. uh, Yeah, whenever there's a dog, I'm like, oh, no. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always worried for the dog. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, please don't have a dog in the book. But, yeah, uh, can you tell us a bit about where your idea for this one came and what kind of, you know, research you had to do and everything? Yeah. 
I was in a fire drill at a school while I was giving a presentation, and it's Queensland's biggest primary school at the time. So there were 1,200 kids at this primary school, and we all went down on the Oval, and while we were down there, they started talking about lockdown situations that they had been in, the kids and the teachers, about escaped prisoners and then dogs on the loose in the school, which ended up being like little white chihuahuas. And, um, you know, most of the situations were fine, and, you know, and, and they turned out okay. But I'd never heard of a lockdown drill before and when I was at school you didn't do that and so I just thought it was a really high pressure situation to put a group of characters in and I tend to rather than some people start off with a character and then they build a story around it I tend to come up with a scenario that's going to put a group of characters under pressure and then I find out who the characters are over the drafts they build up and they're one dimensional to begin with and they build dimensions up through to the fifth or sixth draft mm. so um so I thought I want to write a lockdown story. And I thought, unlike, you know, Two Wolves in the Fall, which took me five years to write each from, you know, zero draft to, to publication, I thought, I'm going to write it in two weeks. I'm going to be like Jack Kerouac and I'm just going to, like, knock it out on a typewriter with a really long piece of paper and I'm just going to send the scroll off to my publisher and then it's going to sell millions of copies. And, um But I sort of realised that I didn't want to be uh, cheap with the reason for the lockdown. I just think, you know, partly because if I'm writing for kids, I don't want to just throw in, you know, uh, someone with a gun or something like that just and just to scare. I just didn't want it to be cheap. And so I could never quite come up with the reason for this lockdown that was going to give a sort of richness that I wanted for the story. And so and then eventually a few years later, um, my wife actually gave me this article about some uh, Vietnamese asylum seekers who were on community detention in Adelaide and two of the asylum seekers, two teenagers were um, taken back into a detention centre at about 3.30 in the morning. Border force arrived and they sent them on separate planes via Melbourne and Sydney to and put them back in detention in Darwin. And about 12 other people took off on the run cross-country um, and from my understanding were never found because they didn't want to be put back into a detention centre, understandably. And I thought, what if one of those people had have hidden in a school and that sort of caused a lockdown and that was and then I felt like I, I really had a story wow yeah and you again I want to be spoiler free here and it's a real weakness of mine to say stuff that's <laughs> going to ruin the story so I'm just going to tread carefully in Bowen if you think I'm going oh, too close like cover your a single mouth my hand yeah so because of the seriousness of, of the topic here in detention um and because of the kind of terrible current situation, um, did you find it hard to balance realism versus, you know, a good story that you didn't want to be super depressing? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I that I didn't want to be super depressing. I did read lots of super depressing stuff while I was writing it. And even actually this morning in the Herald, there was an article about, you know, after so many years of war in Afghanistan, um, you know, supposedly to sort of free the people and give them opportunities and things. There are lots of kids starving and there are, you know, and so there is a lot of, there is a really dark side to that. But I also wanted this story to be hopeful yet realistic. Mm. I didn't want it to be shiny, shiny, and I didn't want the ending to be, hey, and everything's going to be fine. Um, but I also didn't want, I also didn't want it to be too dark because I think there are those stories of hope and I had really good advisors from an organization called Starts that's a, a sort of trauma or an organization that helps people who have been through trauma um, and some of the stories that Yasmina and Hassan told me were stories of hope 
even in the face of great adversity. And those were the stories that I guess I gravitated towards and that I, I like to think that there, that there is hope. Yeah, because that's not just one of the things that struck me when I was reading it, that you found that balance really well. Like, this is, you know, this is a great ripping story for kids. Mm -hmm. Like, I think they they will pick it up and just fly through it and really enjoy it. But it's also, you know, quite realistic. Like, I mean, it's very realistic, but also not... Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not... It doesn't make light of um, the situation in any way. No, but I didn't want to be didactic either. I think that was one of the big things was playing against um didacticism and you know teaching and this is this is good for you and these are my political views and therefore you must have them too i sort of wanted to remain uh, you know somewhat as neutral as i as i could be yeah in in telling that story i, I just don't like even when a uh, you can tell an author has the same political views mm-hmm. as you do. It's really annoying when in every line you feel like they're telling you yeah. this is what you should do. And kids get that all day long from mm. adults and yeah. so they don't need it from authors also. I think you you did that fantastic, fantastic because of what you were saying um, about how you didn't want the lockdown to be caused by something that's just so kind of not mundane per se but black and white, you know, like a gunman, that's bad. Right. Yeah. There's no room to, to move or think with that. You know that's a bad situation. But to have, you know, an asylum seeker be the reason for a lockdown, it really adds that area of grey and like, what well, is this? There's a uh, lot of. Are we da- yeah. in danger? No. And then a lot of different characters have different opinions about it. And Dan himself has to have, you know, his own opinion um, when he's surrounded by, you know, adults who think they know better and yeah. students who just blurt out what they think. Um, and the adults in this story have great, like, real integrity as characters yeah. as well. Like they, you know, the advice and the opinions put forward by uh, Dan's mum and also the teacher mm-hmm. who's name I Miss Ashton. Miss Ashton. Yeah. And, and um, actually my um, English teacher when I was in about year nine or ten, she was an ex-police officer. And so we used to spend the entire lesson just asking her <laughs> stories about being a police officer. So that's why that is in the book. Um, and I just thought if she was an ex-cop, that makes it interesting. I also I liked um, Gabrielle Lord's Fortress when I was a teenager. Um, you know, small group of kids in regional Victorian school taken hostage by, um, you know, masked men put into a van and then kept in a cave uh, or, you know, hidden in a cave. And they had to sort of band together with their teacher to overcome, you know, their, their kidnappers. And I sort of thought this was a similar situation in a lockdown I wanted to see how the seams split between these kids, but also how they kind of bonded in order to deal with what is potentially a really scary situation. And I, I loved how you did that and still made them just like a funny group of kids yeah. as well. Like, you really captured, <laughs> yeah, that sort of small class having jokes to lighten the mood, but also that's just what they're used to, and it made me chuckle. The one who keeps calling serious serious to miss, even though she keeps saying, "Don't call me, <laughs> Don't call me right. miss." <laughs> There's little details like that. Just make it really, you know, uh, fun to read while also incredibly tense. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I, I, I think visiting schools, a lot of schools, uh, helps, you know. You're talking mm. to kids all the time. And, you know, I go to various schools where I'll be working 
with highly literate kids who are amazing storytellers and have all written novels themselves and they're 12. Um, <laughs> and then you go to schools where, uh, you know, the classes are, you know, might be less literate or there are kids who are, who are sort of struggling, but they, everyone loves stories and afterwards they'll be really excited about, you know, telling their own story or oh, I might give that book a go even though I don't really like books or, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's where some of those characters came from. And I really think you've got something here for that. Like, I, I, I really see this being something that the schools will, will gobble up and the kids will absolutely love and teachers will want their kids to be reading and, and opening their minds to. Which is something that you you nailed. Like, let's go – we're talking about the tension today, but let's mm. just, like, a little bit go back um, in time. I can't tell you <laughs> how many school orders we get for two walls. Mm. It's just um, something that – obviously just keeps keeps being put on the reading list for kids um how does it feel knowing that your stories to fall as well um mm. are like uh you know being not only uh eaten up by kids but endorsed by teachers i think it's great <laughs> i mean i think i think my fear uh with that book was that you know maybe it'd be too worthy and you know maybe teachers would you know make kids read it or maybe it wouldn't be worthy enough and teachers wouldn't think it was you know because I'm going for that middle ground between mm. trying to make a book um you know engaging and yet rich in some way yeah. um and so I love I like to think that kids will really as you were saying will will rip through a book just because they need to know what happens next but it's really cool to think that you know that teachers might also sort of pull it apart like there are, there are some really interesting notes and things that teachers make and whole kits of you know where they pull the whole story apart which is fascinating in ways that you know I might not have even thought about that character in that way but they've mm. they've seen other you know other perspectives on the story yeah it's exciting as long as the kids continue to like it and <laughs> and it's not um, you know how that thing when you've got to study something yeah. suddenly you start you, to hate it yeah it yeah. would have been something you liked but you don't anymore but I think actually you know teachers have lots of engaging ways and use lots of video and images and maps and lots of things to to make the study of a novel exciting these days well and I think it's why they choose books like these as well it's like you know when you have to study something for school you're already facing a challenge so you need to find I know that you've probably heard this before but you're like a go-to recommendation for reluctant readers um so for kids who you know don't equate books with like excitement or um, prefer TV or video games yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. These books are perfect, but also still full of really important ideas yeah. that are the sort of thing you want to be talking to kids about in schools. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I like books with unadorned language. Like I like um, Hemingway and I like Steinbeck and in Kids and Teen I like uh, Gary Paulson who's very just, just spare. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like... Um, sort of floral language. I don't like. I don't like it when the language takes me out of the story, even if it's for me to go. Wow, that was a really cool line. Mm. Um, I want to. I want to just stay stay in there in the story, and you know, story is always top priority. Yeah. Do you ever read Robert Cormier? Ah, oh, is it is the Chocolate War? Yeah, is that him? Yeah, yeah, I remember reading it as a kid. Yeah, yeah there are a couple of his. What else has he written? Oh, I can't remember. I think there was one called something about. Oh, this is just going to descend into. Uh, He's had a couple. I really remember the chocolate one. He had another one, something, a a bunch of kids 
hostage on a bus. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and then, yeah. there's another one that I read around that time, The Mouse and His Child, which isn't Robert Cormier, but uh, do, you remember, do you know this book? No. Ah, it's really good, just one of those classic. And, and I read Fortress probably not long after that as in high school. I have to um, read Fortress. I didn't actually know that's what it was about. Ah, it's it really, really good. good. You sold me when you were talking about yeah. it. I'm like, what is this book? Oh, okay. <laughs> it's really worth a look. And they made a really creepy movie with uh, Rachel Ward is plays the teacher. Um, okay. And I think she may have directed it too, possibly. But anyway, both are worth checking out. Okay, so that, that's a good segue into how much do you think your background in TV informs the way that you are as a writer? I think it probably helps with dialogue. You know, you're so used to reading, you've read lots and lots of scripts, and I've, you know, tried writing scripts and I've made short films and then directed actors and things. So I guess you would like to think that you have some kind of ear for dialogue where it feels true and honest. And yet dialogue is never quite the way people really speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I hope it helps in that sense. And I really like the idea that you get to be different characters. Like actually in this book, this is the first time I've done multiple perspectives in mm-hmm. a book. Um, you know, it's told from two, you know, from Dan's point of view, the boy that finds Seema, and then Seema's point of view, the girl who escapes from the immigration detention centre. And that was a big challenge. And initially it was actually told from just from Dan's point of view. And I thought then I'm playing that character as the writer. I feel like I can write from his point of view, even if his life is quite different to mine. But then I realised I really needed her perspective. I couldn't just tell the story from the point of view of this kid stuck in a lockdown and and then only see her through his eyes. Mm-hmm. And I remember t- um, talking to my publisher about it and we were like, you know, it's a big thing. Like it's not something to be taken on lightly writing from such a different cultural perspective. Um, and I knew that I was going to have to do lots of homework and, you know, advisors and legal advice and what's the feasibility of this character's journey. And so, um, but I jumped into it because I just felt like I needed her voice. Yeah. So again, in terms of um, going back to your question about um, acting or doing TV and things, I guess that idea of sort of playing different roles, putting yourself in a, another character's shoes, particularly in this case, gives you empathy for that character. You know, I feel Absolutely. like this whole process has been a um, a process of learning more about the journey of people tr- coming to Australia who have no other choice mm-hmm. and the way they're treated once they get here. And I feel like I sort of was able to climb inside. And, and at least learn, you know, 10% of what that might be like, even if I'll never truly understand it. You got that extra layer of richness of just her thinking about, you know, the meal that she wished she could be having right now and, and you know, something her mum said to her that you wouldn't have got if it was just from Dan's perspective. So it really... I can't imagine it just from Dan's perspective. No, neither. Yeah. No, not anymore. Yeah. It came alive. It was only a... It would have been a... It was a 20,000-word book then, and I was like, I can't... I, don't, I just don't see how I can – it, it just didn't seem possible. And, yeah, of course there are there are dangers in doing it, but I think if you do it the right way and you speak to lots of people – you know, I spoke to refugees and former refugees and people who um, work with asylum seekers on an ongoing basis and I read a lot and I, you know, listened to mm-hmm. a lot and watched lots of movies. Like Ai Weiwei's Human Flow is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh film about stateless people all over the world it's beautifully shot but the stats on the numbers of people and the footage of people in in tough situations is was pretty uh yeah educational and kind of shocking so all all of that that went into this book can we circle back to your initial thing where it was like i'm gonna write it in two weeks 
How long did yeah. it actually take? <laughs> well, I, I wrote notes on it in um, writing workshops and stuff with, with kids over about six or seven years, and then I wrote it over two years. I was actually down into the writing of it over two years, which the two years is quite short for me, but mm. I had been thinking about it for a long mm. time before that. So I, I don't know, for me, I need to spend lots of time with the story in order to build up those layers. It doesn't all just sort of fall into mm. place or it doesn't all just go down in the first draft for me. Especially with a subject like this, you can't just willy-nilly it, you know, I think you that yeah. research. Yes, given the subject matter, but also I feel like if you want to write something that's this fast-paced and mm. this engaging, uh, you, all of the detail um, to make it credible and um, realistic, has to. a lot of it just has to come subconsciously into it yeah. so if you don't spend all of those years absorbing it um it'd be really hard to in- insert it without it being an info dump yeah um, so you know i guess if it, if that's how long it takes then that's how long it sure. takes i think the film and tv thing helps with that too the show don't tell stuff i'm, a, mm-hmm. I'm allergic to info dumps and i'm allergic yeah. to exposition and i mean of course there may be parts of the story where i didn't quite nail it and the, it's up to the reader to decide but that pacing is really so important and slipping those little bits of information in so that it feels rich but not doing it in a way that slows the story down or that you know makes you want to throw the book across the room well that um, never happened no <laughs> experience literally yesterday yeah it up going let's see what this is all about and then cut to a few hours later, yeah, we're right. like, hey, that book, right? That was great. Oh, good. I'm yeah. so glad you like it because we're having this conversation now and we've gotten into some serious stuff and the big and the research and all that mm. sort of stuff. But I almost, my intention was when you read the book for that to be kind of invisible for a kid, but, but for those discussions to happen afterwards yeah. Yeah. as opposed to feeling like the lesson is in the book. Yeah. That's exactly what it is, and and that's that's kind of what you deliver every time. It's really well, that's um, the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me to what are you allowed? Do you have something else on the horizon? Like, are you working on something else yet, or are you? I am. I've been wanting to write a story about a sort of drowned town. Like, I used to go to Jindabyne on holidays when I was a kid. And, you know, they, for the hydroelectric scheme there, they built a dam and then, and then filled up the old town. Um, and the old town's still beneath the water sort of thing. And we'd be out fishing and sort of look down and imagine this town down there beneath the water. And I've been trying to nail this story and come at it from different perspectives for a few years, just in between other books. And I feel like I've, I've sort of got a way into this story, a kind of crime that happens on the, on the lake shore where the new town is built that relates to why the town was initially sunk in the first place. Uh, I didn't so. Know that was a thing. What's that? I didn't know that was a thing. It's a thing, yeah, no, all over the world. And, and an interesting thing is that they, that the towns uh, in summer, they quite often sort of start to dry out. Yes. And dry periods in the town start to reemerge. Oh, my God. Although a, a couple of those books have been written, so I can't take that perspective on it. I've had to find a new way. You know, often you have an idea, you think this is brilliant, and then you realise that <laughs> that book's been written, and yeah. so you, you have to find a fresh way in. Oh, yeah. So I don't know. I've always been fascinated by it, and I think it's kind of, you know, creepy and intriguing. And, it is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Scar Town, it's called. Uh, oh, wow. I think it will be. And, I like that. Yeah. And so, but that would be like maybe a few years. In a couple of years, yeah. 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 
Yeah, probably maybe it's like twenty twenty one or something. Yeah. I've written I've written drafts of it already, and over the next year and a half, I'll, I'll hopefully you know finish it. Oh, that's we are ready for that. <laughs> oh, good. Well, just before we, we sign off, we have a couple of quick fire questions. If you're up for it, just okay. I'm ready. First thing. Okay. Yes. Here we go. So, what was the last book you read and adored? The last book I read and adored, I really liked um, Mark Smith's uh, Road to Not Road to Winterland Defenses. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that has just come out. Yeah, okay. I really yeah. enjoyed it. It actually touches a bit on the same sort of area as Detention, mm-hmm. even though it's quite a different story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, what? Where do you write and at what time of day? I write early in the morning. Usually, I get up at sort of five thirty or six o'clock and write for an hour, Good and then I uh, kind of get ready, and then I write from about eight till about twelve or twelve thirty or something, and then I do you know businessy stuff in the afternoons, emails, and all those things. Yikes! That's early, right? I'm like, no thanks. That's when you write best, actually. When you roll out of bed and you're still half asleep, and all those unconscious things come, and actually the words just flow without and then you read it back the next day and you don't even remember writing it yeah. wow that's I the best time. function in the morning yeah. oh really <laughs> yeah it takes me about two copies oh, okay <laughs> give it a shot yeah so maybe that's it right yeah. um so apart from that do you have any other neat tricks to keep yourself going like when you're stumped or all the things i do everything mm-hmm. i put up a picture on instagram uh, yesterday of uh, the typewriter that I sort of started writing detention on because I just finished writing the fall and I always want to use different tools than I used last time because I figure that's why I stopped using Microsoft Word when I wrote Two Wolves. I used Scrivener. And I just felt like it was a different kind of book that needed a different tool to write with. And so on this one, I started writing chapters on um, on a typewriter and not a lot of that actually ended up in the book, but it sort of was, it just allowed me to kind of explore the world of the story. And I, and then the actually the first draft ended up being photographs of those typewritten pages in between bits that were written on the laptop and bits that were um, like notes on my phone and all of those were sort of Frankensteined together into uh, a draft because I knew that a lot of the stuff that was typewritten I might not actually use so I didn't even bother transcribing right. some of it. it it was deleted by the you know, first or second draft. What an interesting that way is to write. Fascinating. I know. Uh, I don't recommend it. <laughs> I seriously don't recommend it. It's not a productive way to write, but it does. What it does is allow you to um, let go and not make it perfect. And it's just this messy, weird-looking thing that doesn't look anything like a book. Mm-hmm. So you can be ruthless in in getting rid of stuff and trying mm-hmm. something new. Yeah, wow. I like that approach. That's cool. <laughs> um. So what's the first thing you do after you've delivered a finished book? I don't have a ritual. I know sort of Stephen King, doesn't he have a ritual where he, you know, pours a glass of champagne and smokes a Cuban cigar that or something sounds like, like that? Him. Or, yeah. uh, I like that. <laughs> I, I probably just, you know, start working on the next book or something or... <laughs> uh, no, no, there, no, there is a moment of relief where you go, oh, but I, I don't I tend to that. let myself... Um, uh, enjoy moments like that as much as I probably should. You don't want to relax for too long yeah. and lose that, that yeah. drive. Because it's never that. truly done, you know. It's, mm. You send it off, but then you know there's still a whole bunch of work to done. do. And then, and I always want to keep on editing and keep honing right up until the, the absolute last mm. minute that I'm allowed to without the publisher getting annoyed with me. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so, so, and then when it finally, finally, finally goes off, 
Yeah. I don't know. I feel like there's been so many endings that, I don't know. I think I just start working on the next book the next day. Do you ever go back and read it once it's out there in the world? I do. I have been for Two Wolves because um, it's been optioned, and so I'm so I've been thinking mm. about it for like other forms. And I wrote a screenplay of Two Wolves, and so uh, I did. I did for that, and okay. the and the Tom Weeklies as well. I've been rereading, but I mean, other than that, I only read reread the excerpt that I, you know, share in talks. Yeah. yeah. I, I, otherwise, you know, you've already read it so many times. Yeah, no I'm done with this want book. To read it. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I can't find any other books that are as good as mine. I just read all my books. Yeah. Um, so, is there a person that you let your let read your work first? Uh, my wife used to read my books first, and uh, she was she's actually a really good reader. And yeah, she was she and my um, eldest son, who's now 15, who's a big reader are often my early readers. Um, but then I also have a really good relationship with um, my editor, Kimberly Bennett, who has edited Two Wolves, The Fall and Detention, and she's amazing, and so I don't feel a sort of trepidation around mm-hmm. sharing with her. That's I feel like right. she understands. She really taps the DNA of the story quickly, and she understands yeah. it kind of better than I do mm-hmm. in a way, and she's amazing. So I think when you get that relationship, it really makes a big difference. Definitely. Um, what's one of your favourite children's books? One of my favourite... I mean, I used to love Roald Dahl, like every yeah. kid does. Um, Paul Jennings I particularly oh, yeah. liked. I was around when he first sort of released Unreal, I think, and that was one of my favourite books. Um, I... Are you saying from when I was a kid or my I favourite mean, kids' it books now? It can be now? either. Yeah. Both. Um, I particularly... On this book, uh, The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas was uh, an influence, I would say, mm-hmm. and Morris Gleitzman's Once in terms right, of... Yeah. Um, just in terms of the way they say things without saying them, mm-hmm. I think when you you know when you say one thing and you're suggesting something else and letting the reader um, kind of put two and two together, I particularly think John Boyne and Morris Gleitzman are good at, at doing that, leaving space for the reader yeah. as opposed to you know hitting everything on the head and just you know uh, laying it all out in a you know in a very straightforward way. Yeah. Right. Um, so, what's the nicest thing that anyone's ever said about your writing? The nicest thing. What did you say earlier? This is where, <laughs> this is where we give the author a chance to humble Brad. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because we want to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, when Hemingway was on his deathbed, he was... No, <laughs> I, think, I don't think I was born there. Um, I, oh, the nicest thing. Look, writers are pretty lucky in that people do say nice things uh, quite a lot. And, and it's nice when kids say it too, when they mm-hmm. take, you know, kids you know write lots of emails and there was a kids podcast actually where he where he reviewed detention yesterday which was really cool it was like an eight minute review and and he said uh he started his podcast with his dad years ago and then he said i'm getting a special guest coming back on the show it's my dad and you know and so dad came in and they both read the book together and so they had this sort of father and son co-reviewing the book and and they had really nice things to say so that is so adorable what's the name of that podcast the name of the podcast is asher talks books i think asher talks reading or asher talks books google later yeah (laughs) and i met asher at uh the younger son bookshop in yarraville 
last week when I was down there and, you know, I think, yeah, you know, him and his parents, yeah, they bought the book and then they went home and reviewed it and then they podcasted it. That's yeah. amazing. And it's really good. It's actually, the sound quality is good and they really, it's a really good discussion. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And just to finish off, what's one bit of writing advice that stuck with you? One bit of writing advice, I think, um, uh, someone called Catherine Drayton, who's an, a sort of a super agent, an American. She's she's Australian, but she works for an American agency. And uh, I, my first book was coming out in America. I was like, "What do I do? And how do you possibly have any influence? And what can I, you know?" And she was, you know, I was like, you know, kind of set up a MySpace. That's that's how you do it. <laughs> that's how you're going to connect because that's going to be around a long time. And so, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, this is probably about nine years ago, ten years ago. And she said one thing, and I always put this at the top of my manuscripts when I first start, and it was, um, the best thing you can possibly do is write a stunning manuscript. (laughs) And then that takes all the pressure out. And you're like, oh, okay, of all the things that I could concentrate on today, all I have to do is sit down and just try to write the best story that I possibly can. And I I think that that um, gave me a trust and a faith uh, in that process of just sitting with the story and making it the best you can that um that I've carried with me over these sort of the, the more sort of serious books that I've written. Mm. Mm. Well, it's interesting how sometimes the best advice is just simplifying things down to yeah. Yeah. Just focusing. Like, what am I doing here? Yeah. <laughs> Writing a book. Writing yeah. a stunning manuscript. And I can't control whether people think it's, you know, uh, inverted commas stunning. But I can try to make it the best thing that I can possibly write. And it's not and I think it's made me not want to churn out books too. I, mm. I, I don't want to release um a bunch of books a year because mm-hmm. I know that I can't give them the, the time to grow, which which is difficult because you do have to be product- you do have to release books every now yeah. and then unless you're <laughs> you know unless you're you wrote the book thief or something. So, um, <laughs> but I think I think giving them time and space to to develop is mm-hmm. is the thing that I really focus on. Well, we can't wait for this next one, whatever it may be. So. Good. Thank yeah. you so much for coming in and joining us today, Tristan. I mean, we love detention. We really hope that everyone picks up a copy and reads it because it's, it's going to be great. Thanks a lot. And um, podcast listeners, you can grab Detention and all of Tristan's other books online at Booktopia. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, Check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget, for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.